Oh, good morning. I am so, so grateful and glad to be with you all, even though I do not know what time it is in my body on West Coast World, but I just cannot wait to dive into what we are going to see in Scripture together and to be talking together about what it means to be the kind of church that raises our kids well. My family... Um, We're back in Southern California, which was home for me, minus the five years I got to live out here in Chicagoland. And um, we live now about half an hour from this really terrific park. It is just like this lovely sort of place. There are like ducks that go around. Sometimes you see these like mice that are like doing their thing. Um, And it's where we celebrate as a family It has actually been part of my family's story since I was a kid. My parents went there as kids. It's terrific. And I know that many of you maybe aren't all that familiar with Southern California, which is totally fine. But I actually, you might be familiar with this one. Um, We have a picture, I think, of our family last time we were there. I'll be there on Tuesday. The thing about Disneyland is as delightful as it is with all that they do to entertain and to create fun and family warmth and all that good stuff, the reality is a big part of why I love it is I trust the place. I trust what it'll be like if I take my kids. I trust how we'll feel together and the memories we have the chance to make together. But you know why I really trust them? I've watched kids get lost. I've watched what the cast does when a kid gets lost. I've watched how they handle the parents that are looking to find that kid again. I've watched how they comfort a kid who's totally disoriented in a place that was supposed to be the best. So I trust them. All I want to talk about together today is trust. Specifically, I would love for us to look at three unhelpful ideas that have crept their way into how many of us think about life and faith and what it means to follow Jesus together. And they are unhelpful for all of us. They are incredibly detrimental for children raised under them. So I want to stare those down a little bit. And then we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, to chapter 3, to a story that many of us are familiar with and some verses that we are familiar with. And after we've looked through these ideas, we're going to pop back into that story to see if we have fresh eyes to understand what Jesus is doing, not only in that story, but what Jesus is inviting all of us into as well. And so here is our first unhelpful idea number one is this. It is the idea that the Christian life is primarily a combination of what we believe in our minds and what we do with our actions. Okay, this is actually an unhelpful idea. And some of you are like, I don't know that I'm going to like this. It's primarily what we believe in our mind and what we do with our actions. Here is why it is unhelpful. First of all, it's pieces. It's all these pieces, and we aren't pieces. The idea that we are pieces is not Hebrew, it's Greek. And it came in to the way that we often read scripture. But if you were to be in the Old Testament and hear somebody say, my soul glorifies the Lord, and we think, oh, that's a piece because of the Greeks, or because that Disney movie with the little blobby people, No, no, no. When my soul glorifies the Lord, all of me glorifies the Lord. Because I am a whole integrated being. I am not pieces. Similarly, you go to the New Testament, and they have these words like believe and faith. And we think, oh, beliefs are the things we think in our heads. The ideas that we sort of align with and assent to. 
We think that faith is this thing that we might have. We either have a lot of it or a little of it, like it's commodity. Mm -mm. This is where English can be a little bit unhelpful when we try to come back into this book we've been given because there isn't just belief as things we agree with and faith as a thing we have. All of these words together, my favorite, the one I wish they would always use in translation, it's trust. When you believe something, it's trust. When you have faith, it's someone you trust. Those words matter because they show us that there's trust to be had. See, for the biblical writers, there isn't faith as this thing. There's not belief as ideas. There's not a soul as a piece of you. You are a whole person, and you make a choice about who or what you will trust to protect or provide for you, and then it will show up in how you live your life. There is who you trust and then how you practice and show it. Now, I've spent most of my church life um, really close to kids and families. A lot of the time that I've been a pastor, I've been in that kind of ministry, which is a ton of fun. And this isn't just about being able to be close to parents and their kids, but grandparents, aunties and uncles, family members who join in with them, teens and adults who just care about kids. And here's what I've seen. This unhelpful idea that we are only what we believe in our brains and then what we do with our actions, the idea that that is what Christian life is, it has led us to talk at kids all the live long day about the things they should believe in their minds and the actions that they should do with their lives. And it means that we as adults decide for kids exactly what they should do. And all of this, the grown-ups decided is okay because of something that they believe is already the goal, and that is obedience. So all of this we can do because this is obedience training. You know who gets trained to obey? Dogs. You train puppies. You train puppies because don't pee in my house is universal. Do not chew my remote control is universal. We've taken the idea of obedience training for puppies and we have applied it to children thinking that what it means to follow Jesus will always be universal for every child and every family and every context and every place, and that is not true. Our children need to be who they are in the families they've been placed in, in the homes that they live in, in the parts of the city that they're from, as their own selves that God made. We are not trying to do obedience training for our children and calling that faith. We are trying to raise kids who can trust a Jesus that they know because we have introduced them to him. And so I want to reach out to now idea number two, which is if we are not careful, if we start with our first unhelpful idea, we end up with a second companion unhelpful idea, which is that faith is fundamentally list management. There's things on the do list, the list of things that we do and the things that we believe, and then there is the do not do list, right? Some of you know this list. Good Christians do. Some of you know and good Christians don't. I come from, I come from an American Baptist background. Um, very different than the Southern Baptist, I gotta say it. Nevertheless, like we have to talk about where dancing lives every time. Like, what is, is the dancing on the list that we can do? Is dancing on the list that we don't do? We have this. Do you know these lists, friends? Okay, you know these lists. All right, 
Um, introverts, I'm sorry. That's all your warning you're going to get. I would love for you to please turn to a friend uh, or a friend you're about to make, and you get a minute to brainstorm as many of the things you know live on the list. Now, this might not have been your own personal experience. You might not agree with it. That's okay. But you know these lists. So find a friend. Take a minute. What is on the list of things that good Christians do? What is on the list of things that good Christians do not do? Go. All right, you got a pretty good list rolling. I am curious how many of you, when you think about your own faith experiences and how you were introduced to who God is, how many of you can get, could you hit it for us? A bingo. Right there? Right here. This is your story. Some of y'all did not come from a space that gave you a bingo and you're like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. So we have these lists, we have them down pat. And when we give kids a list management faith, we're just filling out the stuff that's going to go on their bingo card, man. Of the things that we tell these kids, here's what you should do and here's what you should not do. And here's the thing, I'm not saying these are all bad things or that they don't matter. They do. They do. But... When we have list management faith without a relationship rooted in trust, we have ourselves a problem, okay? So I want to talk to you about that because there is research on what happens when you have a list management faith without trust, a lot of it actually. I was on a research team, youth group kids, let's follow those high school seniors as they move into their first few years after high school. Different colleges and different experiences. Some of them are still at home, different places, all these things. Let's have them tell us about their faith. And you know what they said about their faith? They said that they were having a hard time maintaining the lists that they knew they were supposed to maintain. They said that they don't have a God who has grace for them as they move into their adult life. They said that pain had come their way and God didn't feel like God was anywhere around. There's a second research project that's real important for the work that I have been able to do. It came from Christian Smith and his team at Notre Dame. And it came out in like the mid-2000s. That same research project I was on, mid-2000s. And they interviewed teens from all over the U.S. from a variety of faith traditions. So not exclusively Protestant Christians. They had over 3,000 young people in this study that they did, asking them to talk about religion. And what came out of it was this term that can kind of sound like academic jargon. I'm going to give it to you, then we're going to unpack it. The term was that no matter where kids came from, they still fundamentally believed religion was moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's been around for a while. Moralistic, I'm supposed to be good. Therapeutic, I'm supposed to be happy. Deism is a view of God that puts God far away and watching, overseeing things. And God's job in this system is crisis prevention and happiness provision from up here. God in this view is Santa Claus, who sees you when you're sleeping and knows if you're awake and knows if you've been bad or good. And more kids think that's what God's like than anything. God is the giver of the lists in their system. And here's the thing. Y'all, we have had this kind of research for a while. We are so overdue for a response. 
So if you, for a city, if you parents, if you grandparents, if you aunties and uncles and family members, if you want to be a kind of faith community that is raising up young people well, you need to make the choices you're going to make for the sake of the kids you're raising. We've had research and we've not responded because it keeps the adults comfortable and we are never going to raise up young people who know and trust Jesus if we are not willing to make choices and changes for the sake of the kids we want to raise. And a big part of it is that we have to drop the lists. I'm not saying that faith doesn't play out in their life. It does. I'm not saying there won't be choices they make about who they're becoming. They will. But young people need time and space and opportunities to get to know God so they can discover if God can be trusted. Because everything changes once we have a God we know and trust and are figuring out how to live it out. All right, one more unhelpful idea. You started from this idea that faith is just the stuff we believe in the way we live it out, and therefore we can obedience train our children, telling them exactly what we believe and how we live it out, and put all of those things on lists, and that leaves the question, how do you decide what's on the list? And that's all the Bible becomes. So this is our third unhelpful idea, that the Bible is here to populate the list with the right items, right beliefs, right actions. Now, does the Bible speak to what is most absolutely and deeply true? Absolutely. Is it a place where there is life-giving wisdom that influences our day-to-day? Yes, it absolutely is. But you can treat it differently. You can turn it into something else, right? We can turn it into something like a rule book, a morality instruction manual. And it was never meant to be those things. As Pastor Trey Ferguson says, it's a library. And in each of its rich and different books, it tells a family story, which is a very different sort of thing. When I tell kids what the Bible's like, I say it's like Mr. Potato Head. All these different parts representing the story of who our God is and what our God is like. In the book of James, if you're familiar with it, he talks a lot about how faith, trust, without works is dead. But I'd also like to invite us to think about what happens when you flip it. What about when you ask for all works with no trust? Because there are two things that come out of that, especially kids. All works, no trust. Two things happen. One, they end up exhausted. They end up exhausted by list management and resentful of the God who told them to live that way. Lowercase g, I don't think our God is like that, but they do. Or pain comes, and the God of the lists is nowhere to be found. Right? The God of the lists is only there to prevent the crisis. So if I am now in crisis, where'd that God go? Right? When I end up totally exhausted and down a shame spiral because managing my own goodness is exhausting, Or I end up in hardship because life is hard. And where was God then? This, by the way, also comes from the research. I'm not just telling you what I think happens. I am telling you what thousands of teenagers are saying happened because this has been the dominant model for what we think we're supposed to do with kids in faith for decades. But we can be communities that change. We can be the kind of community that comes to the Bible 
and says, hey, I want to help you see how this is a rich family story that is so vibrant and life-giving. Now, with all of this as our backdrop, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes in the Gospel of John. We're starting in chapter 3, when a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, all right? Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Pharisees often get kind of flattened into caricatures of themselves, which isn't always totally fair. But nevertheless, it is probably really fair to say that Nicodemus is representative of this idea that what God wants most is obedience. He's a good ambassador for that. Pharisees obey, right? They don't just obey what they understand to be in the law. Um, Some are known for this idea, you might have heard this before, of putting a fence around the law. If this is what we know God says, we're just going to step right out here and make sure we act even more in alignment, just to be safe in the way that we obey. And so here's Nicodemus doing that, right? Point biz, dude's got lists, lists for days, right? And he comes to Jesus at night, which is really important because John loves to play with imagery about light and darkness, Whenever something's happening in the dark, someone doesn't yet understand something. That's our first clue of what Jesus wants to do. And he starts by saying, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, Nicodemus does believe that Jesus is a teacher who somehow has God's backing because when he performs miracles, that would be evidence that God's divine authority is going with him. John always calls miracles signs, which I love because that word is meant exactly how it reads, which is it points to something. You are doing signs that point to the fact that God is with you. And so what Nicodemus is now trying to figure out is can God be trusted in all of this? And is Jesus really doing what he hopes and thinks Jesus is doing? as he announces the reality of the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he continues talking through verses 3 through 15 about this metaphor of new birth, which, among other things, um, it implies the idea that you are born into something, right? When creatures are born... They join families. And so whether that is about being born from above, born by the Spirit, you become family in the same way that people who are born from parents often become family. Which means that Nicodemus starts with, I got my lists. I want to know if you are now my new list-giving guy. And Jesus responds with a story that says, no, but you can join my family. Idea one was that primarily the Christian life is about what we believe in our heads, what we do with our actions. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, no, 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 there's me and there's life and family of God. And then you continue on with this nighttime conversation between the two men. And Jesus wants to keep building a case. I'm sorry, John, that is, is trying to keep building a case for who Jesus is, right? That he's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God in a body, word made flesh. And then John really hopes we see why he's here. Because this is the conversation 
especially because it is at the beginning of John. John does this thing where he plays with the order of events. He never tells things in the order that they like happened. He's just like, hmm, I really want to put it here so I can make a point. So the fact that it's John 3 means he's hoping anybody who comes to his story will be like, all right, whatever I found in the beginning about who Jesus is is what's going to help me see the whole story different. So John puts it at the front end. This is the moment where if it was true that Jesus came to just give us the right ideas to agree with and the right actions to put on the list, he's about to say so. And this is what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. All right, I want to work backwards here because we really would rather skip verse 18, let's be honest. So we're going to start there, okay? This idea that someone who does not know Jesus is already condemned. Where does the condemnation come from? Well, we've just heard it's not coming from God. It never is. Our God has come to save and to bring home and to bring into a family. So where does the condemnation come from? I would suggest this is a description of what it already feels like to live without a life connected to a trusting Jesus. When you do not have that chance, then you find yourself experiencing the darkness, to borrow Chan's image. You know, the darkness that comes with believing that God abandoned you in your grief when you worked so darn hard to maintain those lists in the first place. You were trying so hard to be more good and less bad, and where did God show up? Like the depression that follows exhaustion from working and working and working to manage your own goodness. That is the experience of condemnation that so many people, young people, old people, depending on how we've been told Jesus wants us to be, we're sitting here thinking, I thought there was life, and it doesn't feel like life at all. That is the thing he has come to free us from. There's an Old Testament scholar. His name is John Golden Gay. I love his work. In particular, when he translates the Old Testament, he makes a choice about what to call an idol. You know what he calls it? A no-god. A no-god. A no-god that promises you they will keep you safe and protect you and take care of you, and they can never offer life. They never can. And our second unhelpful idea, you'll remember, was that faith is fundamentally list management. It is a no-god of list management who runs that system telling us that is what we're supposed to do, leaving us totally exhausted and disillusioned. Jesus is offering life, not lists, always. And then that brings us back up to the verses that so many of us know by heart, this gospel of a God who loves, who comes, who saves, who offers an eternal life that is not kicking into an active gear after we die, but is available now to be part of a kingdom that's going to happen at a Thanksgiving potluck next Sunday. Our third unhelpful idea was just that the Bible's only role will be to populate the lists, to tell us exactly what to believe and the right things to do. But the Bible's here to tell us a story of a God who came right up close to us, 
loving and saving, inviting Nicodemus to trade the lists and have life in a family around Jesus, to trade in his fence around the law and come sit at the family table. We are not, church, united around the common things we all agree on believing and the bingo cards that we can all fill the spots on. That is not what brings us together. We are united around the person of Jesus who has made us family to one another. And we are inviting our children to join the family. We're bringing them into the family that Jesus has made us so they can meet him, get to know him, and discover he can be trusted. Because once we trust, then we might be able to talk about change. In fact, I would love for you to think for a second about the last time you did something and changed something and acted in some way because you were told to and you did not trust the person who told you to do it. Your mechanic asks you to do something to repair a car. We trust our expertise. A family member might ask us to do something. We trust their love. The only reason somebody ever makes a change without trust is fear. We are inviting our kids to meet a Jesus that can be trusted as we are family to one another. And here's the thing. Look, we're talking about our kids, the ones we parent and the ones we will raise together as a church. But I also know we're talking about you. Because whatever it is that you think about who God is and what God is like is what you will pass on to future generations. And many of us, perhaps without even realizing it, we think that God is a list giver, not a life bringer. Many of us, because we were raised this way perhaps, we haven't had the chance ourselves to experience a Jesus who is giving us freedom, a Jesus who is making us family, a Jesus who has pulled up a seat at their table for us. We want to have kids who can experience life and joy and freedom, who can be raised in this family. The freedom that is available because God didn't come to condemn, but to save. The family we are part of as we are born again. And so, I cannot fly from California and not leave without saying just a couple of things. For a city church, for any of you who are parenting and all of us as we try to raise children, on behalf of every young person represented by this community, whether they are part of this church or simply in our lives, I have to beg you, do not use the Bible to manage their behavior. Do not turn it into a brittle textbook or a threatening rule book. Let it be our family story. Will you? No, no, no. Will you? Do not tell kids to obey before they have decided if there is a Jesus they can trust. Do not tell them how they have to act before they even know who God is. Let them have the chance to get to know Jesus, will you? And do not, oh, this one, y'all, okay. Please do not mock the trust-building journeys of our children 
when they bring you really good questions by giving them over tidy answers. We're not gonna do that. Those are great questions and we will walk with our children for as long as it takes because our God can be trusted. We will carry their questions with them. We will, we will. Jesus had just a few words. He said, let the children come to me. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. May we be the people who don't hinder our children so that they can know our loving, life-giving God. Amen. Let's pray. God, that's what we ask. Make us people who can trade our lists for life. Make us people who know we can put them down because you can be trusted. Because knowing you is what changes who we are, not just doing things we think we're supposed to. Help us rest in that. God, for any of us who have been told we have to manage those lists and be more good and less bad, may we break through with freedom today by the power of your spirit. Would you be the one to say, no, no, no. You can come to me and rest in my love. And may we be a church that raises up children who have the chance to get to know you and discover how incredibly trustworthy you are. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we get up for Meredith?